The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. An exposition of the Great Commission doesn't come better than that. So thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Dennis, for your input today. We're so grateful for it. Everything that has been said today, I want to make clear, is said in love and for the good of the church. Some things that we hear are hard to hear, uh, but if we're going to be benefited, it's important that some of those things sting a little bit. Otherwise, we're not being admonished and trained and equipped. And our concerns about individuals or groups or movements are only born out of the fact that the church of God is at stake and the mission of the church is at stake. The gospel of the kingdom is at stake. And the apostle Paul was not shy about speaking clearly that if anyone, he says, preaches any other gospel than I have made known to you, men or angel, let him be accursed. That's how seriously Paul took the significance of the gospel. How do I wrap up and when you're exhausted uh, in these last few minutes of our day? It seems to have gone very, very quickly. How does one wrap up what we've heard today and try and uh, bring some sort of summary or close to our time together? I thought it might be good, and uh, Jeffrey almost stole my thunder, but he didn't go all, all the way, so I will turn to it. Psalm 72, which is an important text for Canadians. Psalm 72, and reading verses 1 through 14 This is what the psalmist says. You'll know why it's important for Canadians in a moment if you don't already know this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The great text of the Canadian dominion. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. What is the difference between the early church, we've heard a bit about them today, and some of our evangelical forebears and us? in Canada today, in Europe today. What is the difference? 
Can I suggest that it's perhaps that the implications of the faith for all of life were simply more deeply rooted in their lives than they are for us right now. And that's what today is about. That's what the mission of the church is all about. The ramifications, for example, for the reformers. We heard the reformers uh, mentioned by Jeffrey, and I share his consternation with some of those who, in my own camp, as it were, do those mindless and pointless circles of triviality, speaking about the solas of Scripture but not applying them. You can be... Uh, you can hold to a body of orthodoxy but still be a corpse. Still a body. I think it was the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, who said even in the 19th century, we get Christians, he said, into church and then we mummify them and stick them on a pew. And he wrote a book called In Darkest England and the Way Out in which he proposed a way forward for the church to impact the poor and the needy of London. One of the greatest reform scholars at Princeton was Charles Hodge. Some of you may have heard of him. Charles Hodge, great American theologian. And this is how seriously he took the word of God. He said this, It is our duty as far as lies in our power immediately to organize human society and all its institutions and organs upon a distinctively Christian basis. Indifference or impartiality here between the law of the kingdom and the law of the world or of its prince, the devil, is utter treason to the king of righteousness. The Bible, the great statute book of the kingdom, explicitly lays down principles which, when candidly applied, will regulate the action of human beings in all relations. There can be no compromise. The king said, with, reward to all, with regard to all descriptions of moral agents in all spheres of activity, he that is not with me is against me. If the national life in general is organized upon non-Christian principles, the churches which are embraced within the universal assimilating power of that nation will not long be able to preserve their integrity. End quote. Well, Hodge was absolutely right. The first task that we have, and we've heard about it today, is first of all, as individual believers and as churches, to faithfully preach the word of God. That's the first failure of the church in our time. To faithfully make known the word of God and apply it Not just its formal authority that we say, yes, the Bible is the plenary inspired, verbally inspired word of God, but to apply that verbally inspired word into our lives. And this is not drudgery. I mean, did not David say, on your law I meditate day and night? You ever seen the delight in the word of God that fills Psalm 119? Jesus said, didn't he, my yoke is easy? My burden is light. Martin Luther said, No greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than to have God's word taken away from them or falsified so that they no longer have it pure and clear. God grant that we and our descendants be not witnesses of such a calamity. 
Well, are we not witness to that calamity now? Much of the academic help that's been offered to the church refuses to see that Luther's calamity is upon us, and it's the worst kind to befall Christians. Commensurate with this, we've heard today about our culture from Jeffrey, from myself this morning, from Dennis, and we don't need to talk any more about cultural decay. We've heard about it. It's interesting, though, that non-believing social commentators who do not have the Holy Spirit, who do not have the guidance of God's Word open to them, are coming to the conclusion that our culture is in desperate need of a public return to Christianity. Dr. Samuel Gregg has noted that this number of secular commentators is increasing, and he points to one example. He says this, This makes it even more ironic that increasing numbers of secular European thinkers believe Europe can only reinvigorate its distinct identity and values through re-engaging its Judeo-Christian heritage. This is certainly the conclusion of one of Germany's most prominent intellectuals, Jürgen Habermas. A self-described methodological atheist, Habermas has been insisting for some time that Europe can no longer, no longer has the luxury of wallowing in historical denial. As Habermas wrote in his 2006 book, A Time of Transitions, Christianity and nothing else, this is a quote from Habermas, Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter, end quote. Uh, When I read that, uh, it even shocked me, and I'm not usually that shockable. That's a remarkable statement from a secular humanist who describes himself as a methodological atheist, he's asking, where is Christianity? Where is the church to step in to this cultural disaster? We're slowly beginning to realize then that this decline of the virtues of God's word bequeathed to us by our forebears has led us in the present direction and that we as we've heard from Jeffrey, in the Great Commission, are God's countermeasure. We, the church, are God's countermeasure. It is not a shock, it is not a shock that when you analyze history's worst tyrants, modern history's worst tyrants in the 20th century, and many of the revolutionary intellectuals who have transformed the way we in our culture think about ourselves, that they were openly hostile and vilified the word of God. The father of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud. And I was just learning today from somebody here attending the conference that there is a case coming before, actually a piece of legislation, I should say, that's being planned for next year in Canada that will require all those offering counsel to people, any form of counseling, in the public sphere, 
to be submitted, surrendered, authorized by, uh, given license by one of the major bodies, colleges of nursing or psychotherapy. Who knows where that could lead? Whether pastors will soon be allowed to even counsel church members. But the father of modern psychology spent his last days spitting out venom against the law of God, ejecting law and crime from the universe, reinventing Moses as a pagan Egyptian in Moses and monotheism. Sigmund Freud. Adolf Hitler, probably the 20th century's most famous tyrant, although according to Ray Comfort's recent film, 180, seems that most young people today, or many in the universities, don't even know who he was. An actor, a guy with a mustache, this was kind of the reactions from university students. He said this, this is what Hitler said, history will recognize our movement as the great battle for humanity's liberation, a liberation from the curse of Mount Sinai. Our culture has moved in a like direction of hatred towards God, despite the fact that on our judicial buildings in America, in Canada, in Europe, hanging on the, the, the walls of our courts is the law of God. As goes the church, so goes the world. And that's why a conference like this is important, and that's why what you've heard today is so important, because If we're the salt of the earth, if we are the light of the world now in Christ, we have to take a responsibility for our context. Put another way, what we've been saying today is that we must repudiate all dualism. What does that mean? Well, in his word, so says Abraham Kuyper, former prime minister of the Netherlands, God absolutely forbids every inclination and every effort to break up your life into two parts, one part for yourself, the other part for him. There can be no duality, no artificial dichotomy between the private and the public, between faith and life, between heaven and earth. We're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God doesn't have one rule for one and another rule for another, one gospel for some and a different gospel for another, one law for one and another law for another. That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh, had Amos preach to the nations around him, and sent his disciples into the world. But we've done what Kuiper decries and separated life into these two parts, an upper story and a lower story. And as that has happened, by separating the personal and the public, the spiritual and the material, the upper story, this realm of the spiritual or the soul, as it were, in the lower story, we've said, well, that doesn't really matter so much. There is a freedom then to sin in the lower story. And actually, almost the promotion of sin, the relativism of our age, has become a practical virtue. Sin has been called virtue in our time. Now, the prophets say that this will happen. I think it was Bertrand Russell, I'm going from memory now, who said, if we give me the minds of the young and we will teach them and we'll be able to teach them that snow is black. And they'll believe it. 
What has happened is that we've taken this spiritual realm, this dualistic mentality, and said, the Word of God, the sacraments, that's for the church. Our spirituality, our devotional life, that's the sphere of the church, that's our spiritual life. And then there's everything else. And so we do laundry and do the gardening and do our cooking and do education and do art and do business and do media and do politics, do everything else in terms of what everybody else is doing. But we add Jesus. And that gives us a greater sense of fulfillment. But this is not the message of Scripture. God, by right of creation, governs all things and legislates for all men. And what we have seen, the origin of that idea that I've described to you, dualism, is in Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy. And we have severed the Hebrew roots of the Bible, and that is at the root of our current disintegration of life. People then, despairing about this world, and as Dennis said to us this afternoon, there is, of course, plenty of reason at times to be discouraged and despondent. Discouraged by the, case, by the situation in the world, we say, well, we need to escape. Our hope is to escape the world, to leave it as quickly as possible. And that becomes the hope of the church, to escape and to be free from the confines of our earthly life, rather than pursuing the reconciliation of all things in Jesus Christ. In his study, The Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith, Professor Marvin Wilson points out that our time and life abandoning tendency comes directly from this way that we've allowed humanism, it has its roots in Greek thought, to creep into the church. And yet he points out that it's very significant that the first thing God sanctifies in Scripture is not a place and it's not a thing, it's time itself. Our time here is sanctified by God. Listen to what the Word of God says, and God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian, in the sense that I do think you can turn your lights on and do necessary work on the Sabbath. But we lost something when we repealed Sabbath laws here in my lifetime and in Britain. You know, the people of Europe in the 16th and 17th century saw Sabbath laws as freedom from slavery because rest and rejoicing is what the Sabbath is about, what the day of rest is about. So that we can say God is in control of the universe, not me. There's a holy waste of time everywhere in the Bible. Have you noticed that? One day in seven. One year in seven. Another one at the 50th. Is that a waste of time? But if our times are in his hands, God has given us our time. Some people just work themselves to death. Not in terms of God's purposes, but just in terms of a desire to retire with a boat and play golf for the rest of, as quickly as possible. Not realizing that God has sanctified time and history. Biblical history is not the story of celebrating space, says uh, Wilson, but the revelation of how people learn to sanctify moments, events, time. Thus, the essence of spirituality is for God's people to know the dynamic, dynamic presence and quickening power of the heavenly Lord at work on earth in their daily lives and activities. That everything that you do, in other words, you might be a, a mum at home, 
You might be working at Tim Hortons. Everything that you do matters to God, and you as an individual have been sanctified. We as God's people, we've been set apart for his purposes. And God sanctifies time for his use. That's why he gave us a day to rest. Because when we rest, we say, I don't run the universe. I can afford to rest in God. Because he runs things. I don't need to plan. I don't need to stress. I don't need to worry. But I can rest and rejoice in the Lord. The principle of rest, and I do think whether it's Sunday for you or or a Saturday or a Wednesday, whatever day is your day off, Sunday is not a rest day for me. Okay, I have to take another day of rest. But the principle of rest, because in God, work and rest coalesce. When God works, he rests. Because as I work, I rest in the Lord because he's doing it. God then is in the details, in all time, in all the earth, in all of life, and it's all sustained by his ordination. So this idea that spirituality is heavenly mindedness only, this pursuit of a beautific vision that's nothing to do with laundry, raising kids, education, law, culture making, and so on, this is wrong. Now, of course, we all need to get away sometimes. We all need to uh, retire. Jesus did it. He withdrew himself from the crowd, prayed, took time out with God. Sometimes we talk about spiritual retreats, but really it should be a spiritual advance. If I'm taking time out, it's so that I can be equipped and strengthened so that I can go forward in the work that God has called me to, has called you to. Christ is now reconciling all things to himself. That's what we've heard today. And this was the faith of our forebears that needs to be restated in our time. We should remind ourselves in wrapping this up that we do not live in an era, friends, in which we can be complacent about this issue, the authority of God's word over every area of life. We can't be complacent. I am 37 years old, and I can't believe how much the world has changed since I was in school. Every time I go back to England, I can't believe how much the country has changed. We do not live in times when we can say, oh, well, that's interesting, good stuff, nice to have a day off on Saturday, hear a good bit of speaking, and leave it at that. Because, friends, we have just emerged from a century of fascist terror, Marxist murder, collective madness, totalitarian regimes, slaughter on a scale that makes all the previous centuries together look like Lord of the Flies. That's the century we just left behind us. Do you think the Germans in the 1920s, the the early part of the 20th century, really thought that what took place over the next 30 years could have happened to them? Do you think Europe really believed that a high Christian civilization like Germany could have been swept away in such dictatorial tyranny? Do we really think that because we're Canadians and we're cuddly, we're the world's cuddly bear, if we change our national animal from the beaver, what are we going to be next? Is it the, uh, what's the proposed one? Polar bear. And I'm more Canadian than I look. Believe me. 
I've just been, our family's been doing some research, and it looks like my own grandparents and great-great-grandparents were Canadians. Actually, quite famous ones, but I won't divulge that until we've confirmed it. <clears throat> There is some mystery to my uh, maternal heritage, but it's Canadian. And we think of ourselves as the world's peacekeepers, but Jesus isn't interested in peacekeepers. He wants peacemakers. Peacemakers. And to make peace sometimes involves conflict. And conflict is costly. We can't be complacent. We have in our age now a scientific manipulative state all around us. We have a resurgent paganism, a growing vitriolic atheism, a burgeoning debt-ridden elitist bureaucracy that thinks the way out of debt is debt. Interesting concept, isn't it? We have... Well, that's, of course, the idea that you can have fiat money, but that's, I don't want to digress onto that discussion of economics. We have the growing specter of Islamization, and if you think that's all no problem and fine, go and live in the Islamic world for three months. Experience what it's actually like to be there. The moment has come then, friends, when the saints of God need to believe, preach, and apply to our lives what the Scripture says, what we've heard today about who Jesus is. That's all. I mean, that's all we're doing. We're applying to our lives what we're actually believing who Jesus says he is and applying that to our daily activities, that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. This Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, as Jeffrey reminded us, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're singing from the same hymn sheet today. Revelation 1.5. We're just accepting what the Lord Jesus, and what Scripture says about him, and we're applying it. And this isn't future tense, you'll notice. He is the ruler. He is now the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has made us, according to the book of Revelation, kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Revelation 1.6, this is what he said to the churches in Asia, that we are a kingdom of priests. It's interesting, this is why the Reformation emphasized the priesthood of all believers and vocation. You know, I am a, uh, a, <coughs> a presbyter, if you will, an elder. I'm a pastor in a church. But you are as much a minister and a priest as I am. You are a priest unto God. Not only so, the Bible says you're a king or a queen, as the case may be. We are kings and priests unto God. That's the power of the resurrection. That we are redeemed, set apart, and sent out into the world, as we've heard in this last session, for its renewal. A kingly priesthood. Now, a, a kingly priesthood was given to Adam in the garden of God. Adam and Eve, they were a king and a queen in God's creation. That's what they were. 
And that was lost by rebellion, by the fall, by our rebellion against God. Well, in Jesus Christ, who is called what in Scripture in Romans 5? The second Adam. The second Adam has come to redeem for himself a people and reestablish his kingdom. The second Adam. We are the new humanity in Jesus Christ. You may have come here today thinking, I'm not really that special. I'm not important. I'm just, uh, just coming to try and be informed about things. No, this is not self-help therapy. This is not, you know, seven, you know, look in the mirror every morning and say the, full three, the following three mantras. I am healthy. I am happy. I am handsome, whatever it may be. No, this is that what God says about you. We are a chosen race. I'm quoting the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 2.9. We are a chosen race, a royal, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see, what you've heard today, friends, isn't the gospel according to the EICC or the uh, Alliance Defense Fund. This is the word of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. As kingly priests, we are to work and serve under the scepter of our great high priest, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This isn't vague theological idealism. This is the task of God's people in history. And we, to take that image of the garden, we tend God's garden now. We tend God's garden When we make known the gospel, uphold his law, serve his righteousness, bear his image in our evangelism, in our personal lives, and in every socio-cultural area that you can imagine, we are tending the garden of God. For many of our Christian forebears, this tending of the garden included nation building. The Jewish scholar David Klinghoffer notes that, And I quote, John Calvin took a much more Jewish view of the Hebrew Bible, granting high regard to the legal observance of the Old Testament precepts, even apart from the Ten Commandments. It was Calvinist Protestants, the Puritans, who gave the initial religious inspiration to what became the founding of the United States, the most philo-Semitic country the world has ever known. This reproachment of Judaism and Christianity found its most remarkable expression in American law, which from the 17th century on drew inspiration not only from the Ten Commandments, but for the entire Hebrew Bible. The earliest legal codes of colonial Massachusetts and Connecticut were based explicitly on the Pentateuch's legislative system. American law similarly assumes that right and wrong are a matter of objective reality. The Ten Commandments are at the foundation of our moral and legal culture. It's for this good reason that Moses carrying the two tablets of the Decalogue is carved on the wall of the U.S. Supreme Court. The United States has long regarded itself as a continuation of the history of ancient Israel, an extension of the Jewish church, as the pilgrims put it in 1620. Well, that's America. But we were influenced here by the same things because it was the English Puritans who went to America, it was the loyalists who came north to Canada, and it was British law, Christian law, which informed the building of the United States and Canada. This is our heritage. You see, friends, God, nation building is included in the cultural mandate for these people. 
And you know, that's why you can vote today, and that's why you can get the rule of law today, and that's why you have the freedoms to the degree that we have them that you have today, because these people applied the Christian faith. So the question today, for me as a father as well, is what kind of a life in Christ do I want for my children, my children's children, and their children? Does it matter, or is it sufficient that we retire and pray golf because we probably won't lose our freedom in the next 20 years and I may be gone by then. No, it matters, doesn't it? Because we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The tabernacle which the Jews built was a reflection of Eden. It was a copy of the tabernacle in heaven, the writer of Hebrews tells us, but it was also a reflection of the original creation where human beings ruled and served as kings and priests, and this task is now laid upon this new people, the redeemed priesthood in Jesus Christ, to extend the garden, to increase, to rule, to subdue, bearing and applying God's image in everything. That's the task. Think about this for a minute. What was the first land grant in Scripture? Eden was the first land grant. Interesting how important the earth is, land is in Scripture. The first land grant was Eden. What was the second land grant? Canaan. You see, if you obey me to our first parents, if you obey me, you're going to enjoy the fruit of this garden and this life that I'm giving to you. Disobey me, here's the consequences. That's just summarizing the story. God calls out Abraham, Genesis 12. The nation of Israel is formed. He's promised a land. And that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And if you obey me, I'm going to give you this land. Well, the children of Israel rebelled and they were thrown out of the land, as we heard this morning. In Jesus Christ, we're given another land grant. It's not so restricted, though. What is that land grant? The meek shall inherit the earth. In fact, Paul in Romans 4 tells us that we are inheriting the whole, the Greek word, cosmos. The whole cosmos. The land grant given to God's people is the whole world. Because Christ claims it for himself and he sends us out into that world. With this commission, as we heard, to disciple the nations. Paul the Apostle saw his own life's work, he says, in Romans 1, 5 and 16, to bring about, he says, the obedience of faith among the nations. That's why his ministry existed, he said, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. The contemporary missiologist, who is better than most, Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, he said this, the purpose of for which this covenant with Israel existed was part of God's long-term mission to bring blessing to all nations and all creation. Ultimately, God's presence among his people must point to the blessing of his presence in all the earth. The presence of God in Israel's tabernacle and temple looked backward to his presence in Eden and forward to his ultimate presence among all nations. And that's what our mandate is, to live in terms of the presence of God 
in every aspect of our lives. And with Dennis, Ignatius, and Jeffrey, I too believe that we can win back our age by faithfulness, by applying God's covenant word to every aspect of our lives so that we can say with the early church and mean it, whatever the consequences, Jesus is Lord. Some people have asked, what are the practical things that we can do when we go home? It all sounds very grand, but what does it mean when I, what does it mean Monday morning? What can I do? What can we do? Well, this is not going to be the last EICC conference, I trust. So who might be coming back next year? Just give me a quick show of hands. Good. So that's all of you plus all your friends. So we can unpack these things for the future, but listen to just, I'm just going to give you in very fast bullet form some of the things that you can do in response to what you've heard in no particular order. But first and foremost, learn and apply this theological framework that you've heard today. Learn it. Get the CDs, listen to them again five times if you have to, and learn this framework because it's the Word of God. It's the framework of Scripture. Get it in there, mind, heart, soul, imbibe it, drink it in, so you understand fully what it means to be a believer. Secondly, you could go home and begin a small group study with your friends. Talk to your pastor first. Start a small group study. Take a one of the books that is unpacking this, perhaps Jeffrey's book, Cathedral Builders, or How Then Shall We Answer, or some other text that will help you, and begin to look at that and apply, as a small group, these things into your lives. Why not, thirdly, invite your pastor or your leaders to read Jubilee? It's free, after all. It's free to them, anyway. It's free. We'll give it to them. Encourage people to sign up and come to next year's conference. Uh, begin to think about how God's word applies to your life and family in the following ways. We've talked about teaching, catechizing our children. What about Christian schools and Christian education? Is there a good Christian school in your area? Believes the word of God and teaches in terms of it? If not, agitate till you've got one. Start one. That's what we're looking to do as a church. And find a way of making it affordable for as many parents as possible so that we can begin to take back these fears of education that are so critical. What about repairing your marriage if it's in difficulty? We've heard about the importance of marriage and family. Well, if our marriages are a shambles and in a mess or we're in broken homes, then we need to work at repairing our marriage so that we can be the witness God wants us to be as families. Nobody's got a perfect marriage. We're all fallible. But we can have good marriages that faithfully represent the relationship between Christ and his church. We can't witness to the world on the big things if we can't even address the small things in our own lives. What about tithing your income? God requires it. You know, only 2% of North American Christians tithe. How can God's kingdom be resourced if we don't pay the kingdom tithe? I'm not saying give it to the EICC or give it to the church. I'm saying you are the administrator of your tithe. The tithe is unto the Lord, not unto the church. We need some in the church, so give some of it to your church. But the tithe is unto the Lord. But we can't expect God's blessing in our lives and to be able for us to fulfill the missions God's giving us if we don't do the simple thing that God requires 
sorry to hit this tough one right at the end, that, of, of, of tithing, <laughs> of giving. But it's a basic, because we can talk about the grand plans and the big picture, but how can we fulfill the kingdom mandate if we don't tithe? What about getting involved in localism? Local school boards, Christian schools, political and social arenas, locally. I'm not talking about running for president, running for prime minister. You can get involved. Maybe you're called to do that. I've got a very good friend who's part of the EICC board who uh, began and made a stand and started running for, for local council. Make a beginning. What about taking priority time for evangelism? talking to my own staff team recently about the importance of this. This is not a secondary issue. So many Christians don't have any non-believing friends. How can we be salt and light if you don't know any non-believers? I play soccer on a Friday night, and I bore people to death with this now, but I have done for eight years, partly to stay fit, but mainly so that I can be among among non-believing people because I'm a pastor and run a Christian institution, and I'm around Christians a lot, except when I'm speaking at universities, I need to be with ordinary people, remembering what it means to relate the gospel in the simplest possible terms to people who cook kebabs at the Greek restaurant. How is it that we are being salt and light? Prioritize those friendships. Create businesses to help fund Christian schools, charities, groups, agencies, poverty relief, and so on. If your gift is business, make money. Then give it away. D.L. Moody said, God will give you millions if you don't let it stick. (laughs) So if God's given you a gift in business to make money, make money ethically for the glory of God and put it to use in kingdom service. Consider fostering an adoption. In our church, we have a justice and compassion department. Our director of that ministry is here, Jenny. We have a safe families program. We've developed it. It's never been here before in Canada. We took an example from Chicago in the U.S. We're working with the Christian Legal Fellowship to develop this program so that short-term care can be offered to vulnerable children at risk of abuse. Before the Children's Aid Society steps in, which is totally overwhelmed by all the needs that it cannot deal with and often does not help these children in the end, This is an opportunity, and we need partnering churches and partnering families who will say, we will stand with Westminster and EICC, and we will be a family that will be a safe family for short-term care, all legal, all notarized, all properly done, for a child who's in need for two days up to six months, whatever you can do. It's not enough for us to jump on political bandwagons. That's why I thought it was so important what... uh, His Excellency Dennis Ignatius said, this is not, the EICC is not a a Christian right political activist organization. We believe in the word of God, not where people sat during the French Revolution on the left or on the right. That's where those terms come from. I'm not interested in that. I want to be biblical. And some of the things the word of God says about how we are to be charitable towards the poor, there is a plan in Scripture for biblical care for the poor, not state-sanctioned theft and disguised Marxism. There is a biblical pattern for sustainable wealth and care for the poor. We need to learn it. We need to understand it. Oh, gosh, I could take forever now. But I'm trying to go through these real quick. 
So fostering adoption. What about our own areas of personal obedience to the word of God? Are there areas of our own lives that we're conscious and we know that we're not living in obedience to God and his word? What about the creation of Christian courts of arbitration? This is one for the CLF, perhaps. I'm talking to a few lawyers about this right now. We need Christian courts again. Do you know the Apostle Paul mandates the creation of Christian courts in his letter to the Corinthians? Is there not anyone wise amongst you to judge in these matters, he says? And yet you go to law, and that to unbelievers. He says, better you be defrauded than to take your case to unbelievers. The creation of Christian courts has become a new necessity. What about helping those who are seeking to end the murder of the unborn and getting involved? What about spreading literature and resources and books far and wide to friends and colleagues? What about getting involved in pregnancy crisis support for those mums who are thinking about terminating pregnancies? What about diaconal funds in your local churches? How much are we gathering funding for the needy in our own communities, in our own church communities, in the wider community, so that they can be properly supported and not become state-dependent numbers? I think it was Abraham Kuyper who said, every, sets, every cent of state aid for the poor is a blight on the church of Jesus Christ. I read statistically a few years ago that if every family in the United States, I don't think the study's been done here, every, sorry, every church in America took care of one welfare family. Not every Christian, every church in America took care of one welfare receiving family the welfare state would cease to exist. That's incredible. That's a new invention, the welfare state. It's driving Europe into the ground. Europe economically is in ruin in part because of a totally unsustainable welfare system because the church has said, oh, it's not our job. It used to be our job. Get involved. What about beginning a recovery of the arts? What about modeling debt-free living for your children and your children's children, or at least get started in reducing our own debts so that we can be servants of the kingdom of God. It's a tough one in our time, is it not? Now, well, you did ask. Somebody asked for a list of things that we... Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's hundreds of things. There's any number of entry points. Here's the book. You just have to apply it. To any and every area of life and wherever Christ is served, his kingdom is extended. Shall we pray as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a day to take aside to reflect on your word, to hear your word preached and expounded, to consider the times in which we live as men of Issachar, Lord, we ask for wisdom and for understanding. Help us be those who discern the times, who understand the age in which we live, who seek to live first and foremost in personal obedience to you, and then, without hypocrisy, make known your gospel and your righteousness to communities to families, and as we heard today, to nations, to kings and presidents.
We thank you that you have made us a kingdom of priests to God. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. How grateful we are that we are recipients of your grace today. We know, Lord, that without you, we can do nothing. All of this is far too big for us. We cannot do it. But you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And all power and all authority has been given to you. Give us courage to go in that authority, in the confidence of your presence by the Holy Spirit in everything. We pray that we would nurture, even in this week, as we go back to our homes, to our churches, to our work on Monday, the abiding sense and recognition of your presence as we do laundry, as we fix cars, as we work at the bank, as we teach children, whatever it is that you've put in our hand to do, help us to do everything for the glory of God. And in terms of your word, that the earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Put rejoicing in our hearts, a spring in our step. Make us leap like calves from the stall. As the coastlands wait for your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.